welcome to the Franchise You Podcast, where key industry leaders provide education and inspiration. Here's your host, Dr. Kathy Gosser, the director of the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. So welcome to another episode of Franchise You. And with me today, I have renowned author and speaker, Scott Greenberg. And I am so excited to have you here today. Scott, thank you and welcome. Thank you. I'm so psyched to be here. All right. Well, Scott, you describe yourself, I love this on your website, as a business performance expert, keynote speaker on peak performance mindset, leadership culture, and customer service. Woo, that's a lot. And you're also the author of a fabulous book called The Wealthy Franchisee. And after reading through all of that, I see that you provide so much incredible advice from experience. So we're so glad to have you today. And I want to dive a little deeper into your background, and then we'll give our listeners some really useful advice that you have from all of your experience. So let's get started with your career. So of course, you know, being the college professor, I had to see where did he go to school? And I see that you earned a degree in creative writing from UCLA, but you also studied film at New York University. So that's an interesting background. You want to talk about that first? Sure. And the question on so many people's minds is, you know, an English major, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Right. And probably going to film school, even less. There's pretty much like one thing that you'd think. But, you know, both experiences were great. I did not take any class that said, hey, here's how to run a business or here's what to do in a franchise. Mm -hmm. But being an English major, you know, you're constantly writing and you're constantly reading and you're reading and writing about things, about ideas. And in that way, it expands your brain. And of course, for me, it's, you know, I didn't realize the time, but I now have this job that's about communication. And so being able to write and think that was really important. Well, what was interesting about film school was that so much of the focus, especially in screenwriting class, is on the human condition. They would say, write what you know and pay attention to how people talk and how they interact. And so it just expanded my curiosity and interest in people and ultimately in how they interact. Well, now you can start to see how that connects to um, to business and specifically to franchising, right? So it really was a study in how people think and how people communicate and get along, um, not just the operational side of business. And so in that way, I think my education was very helpful. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. And then you made this jump into the world of franchising, where you were an Edible Arrangements franchisee in West Hollywood, California, for 10 years, obviously establishing the credibility and running a successful business because you also earned the best customer service award among all the units. So talk a little bit about that experience and why you jumped into franchising. Well, there's one sort of big step that happened between the film school stuff and becoming a franchisee. So I dropped out of film school after a semester because I was diagnosed with cancer. It just kind of came out of nowhere. So I spent a year battling that. And in chemotherapy, I look at all these people who are getting the same treatment, but having different reactions, some who are suffering through it and some who are getting through it okay. And again, the, the film student in me, interested in the human condition, got really curious about why is it in similar circumstances, people are reacting differently, which again, was sort of a preview to, to what happens in the franchise world, not to compare franchising to cancer, but all these people doing the same thing, but getting different results, having different reactions to it. Well, I survived that, and that led to a career of motivational speaking, originally about overcoming adversity, and then it expanded into you know peak performance and leadership, and it went pretty well. I was traveling and speaking, getting paid, but it bothered me that here I am talking about leadership to people with more experience in leadership, 
And so I thought, okay, my wife and I, I got married. We were about to start a family. I wanted another stream of income, but I wanted some more real world experience where I could try out these concepts I was seeing on stage to find out what's really true and what's just a bunch of motivational cliches. And as that thought occurred to me, I saw an airline magazine ad for edible arrangements. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting concept. And the idea of a franchise is great because again, they can teach me how to do it, but I was aware I'd be getting into a situation with lots of people doing the same thing, but getting different results. It seemed like a great laboratory to study these concepts to see what works and what doesn't. So um, I flew to Connecticut for a discovery day. And before I knew it, I started signing lots of things, um, front of checks, not backs of checks, not yet. <laughs> yeah. um, and before I knew it, I, I opened up um, you know, our first location. Many years later, we would acquire a struggling location and we would turn that around. But yeah, that was sort of the transition. And my intent was never to leave speaking. I've been doing that continuously ever since, but it dramatically impacted my messaging because so much of this, these cliches just didn't translate to the real world. But I also learned a lot that could help my presentations. And I want everything I say to be real and grounded and actually helpful to people. So um, those two things always went together really well. That makes total sense because I know that being able to draw upon the stories and experiences I had in franchising with my students makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. So I can see that. And thank you for sharing that, um, Scott. That's, that is definitely interesting. And we're going to get to another part where what you talked about filming and that people don't experience things the same way. I see where you brought that back in, in your book. And we'll bring that up. That's, that's interesting. So you won the best customer service award out of all those edible arrangements units. How did you do that? Well, I knew that I'd be terrible at marketing. I'm too impatient. I'm too cheap. And <laughs> I, you know, I get frustrated by it. And so I realized that if we were going to grow this business, we, you know, in a competitive environment like Los Angeles, we sort of need to be awesome. And you know, it was, I made getting online reviews a priority, turning mm -hmm. customers into repeat customers. From the very beginning, I knew that that was something that would just help us out business-wise. So out of pure desperation, because I know so little about every other aspect, I figured if we could just focus on making customers happy, to use our products and services to elevate their emotions, not just sell them an arrangement, but to make them happy, mm -hmm. to make them feel connected, make them want to come back, maybe that will help. And so there's a direct correlation between our sales and the customer service. So we made that a priority. Um, but then I wanted bragging rights. So I kind of campaigned for a little bit too. Like, hey, franchisor, look what we're doing. Look how happy our, our people are because I want to be able to brag about that to our customers. I want to make my employees proud of it. And admittedly, as a speaker, I want to be able to one day be in a podcast like yours and say, yeah, we won best customer service. So <laughs> I, I actively pursued it mostly for customers because it'd be good for the business, but I knew it'd be good for me as well. But that meant figuring out how to actually do it. So we went into it with a, a goal and, and not so much winning the award, but providing that level of service. That really was the goal. So by focusing on that, we learn more quickly. You know, it's um, hard to imagine that your customers are not happy. There's nothing better than having your doorbell ring and seeing edible arrangements at your doorstop. But I assume you're talking about the ones who actually paid, not the ones who received. So that is a different component. Well, Kathy, you'd be surprised. I once was training a new delivery driver and literally our very first delivery, the woman opened the door and started cussing us out uh -uh. because she said she hates these things. She doesn't want it. Send it back. And you better not tell the person who sent it to me that I said this. Oh, my word. Like, that She was an outlier. Most people were very, very happy. But, yes. you know, people, you get different kinds. Uh, 
But yeah, for the most part, I felt like we were really in the celebration business. So I trained that driver and all my employees. It's not enough just to make a basket, to sell it and deliver it. We need to make them happy and be part of the celebration. That was part of the messaging. So uh, most of the time that was the case, but you never know. That is a great insight, not just delivering product, but creating a celebration. That is really a keen insight for sure. So I can see why you won that award. Um, what was, when you were a franchisee, what was the best part of being a franchisee? Well, there's a few things. I had spent years working as a professional speaker, mm-hmm. which is lonely. Mm-hmm. Even though if I have a big audience in front of me, on a daily basis, I'm traveling by myself. I'm, I'm writing material by myself. If I'm not on the road, then I'm at, you know in my office by myself. So the idea of being part of a team and growing people, like I really, again, I was really interested in leadership and team building and bringing out the best in others. And so having an opportunity to do that, to have a sort of, you know, people use this word loosely, but a family was very meaningful to me. And especially, you know, you know, I was younger and I had jobs working for people who I didn't like and were kind of mean. This is an opportunity for me to be the boss I always said I would one day be given the opportunity. And so that was important. But I also like the idea of building an asset. You know, the speaking business, it's not something that grows in value or something I can resell. So the idea of having this franchise business that has value that can go up as sales go up, as the brand gets better, that was also very meaningful to me, feeling like I was part of something that was increasing in value. So it was a great place to learn, a great place to lead, um, and also to be able to drive down the street with my family, with friends, and to see my stores, having something tangible, that really was meaningful for me. I can understand that. So one last question on franchising, and we'll move to your current profession. But what more do you think franchisors could do to help franchisees? Uh, Well, I'll tell you what I think they should do, but I hope they don't because it's what I do. It's what keeps (laughs) me in business. I think franchisors need to focus more on the human elements of the business. They pay a lot of attention to marketing, a lot of attention to operations, obviously a lot of attention to development and sales. But when franchisors call me to speak at their conventions and I say, what are your pain points? What are you struggling with? It's never our people don't know how to market. It's they're afraid to market or that they don't know customer service, but they're too big. It's it's all the human stuff. It's the way franchisees think. It's the way they lead and the way they serve. So all the work I do is around that. And I think most franchisors pay lip service to that. So, you know, they understand it's a huge problem, but it's not part of the franchise agreement. And it may not be part of their own skill set. You know, operations are more tangible, but, you know, great brands, it's also because of the culture and the mindset of the franchisees. It's not just the system. And so I think franchisors could do a better job focusing on the human elements. And that's the focus of my work. Which actually you might be in luck because, as you know, there are regulations out there that prevent franchisors from doing some of that. So that may be another I I can talk about leadership and management at a much deeper level than Mm -hmm. their lawyers will let them talk about Correct. Having lived that life. Correct. You are you are right. So after 10 years of being just a major success at Edible, and I love Edible, by the way, I've done a couple of podcasts with leaders from there. But why did you decide to go back to your speaking, consulting and writing? Well, I'd never left it. So I was always doing it. But what ended up happening is because of you know what was happening with um, you know our success with Edible Arrangements, I started getting invitations to speak a lot in the franchise industry to other franchise brands. And it just went really well and it got bigger. And I realized that really is where my heart was and where my passion was. And my franchise agreement was coming up. Edible Arrangements was doing well. So my stores had value. And I just thought, you know, the timing of this is, it might be a good now for me to transition back to what I really love. I had a great experience with Edible. Um, I'm really glad that I did it. I learned a lot. I made money during it. I made money when I sold, but I wanted to go out on a high note. 
and get back to what I really enjoy. So that was the reason why I made the transition. Oh, and you certainly got back to that because now when we start with your professional speaking career, you are actually a certified speaker with eSpeakers, which is a virtual speaking credential. I'm not familiar with that. Can you tell us about that? So eSpeakers, it's sort of the big central place for professional speakers. And so um, people go there to search for speakers. Speakers bureaus find clients there. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if you have a profile on eSpeakers, that automatically puts you into the speaker list for many speakers bureaus. So it's just it's just a, a big sort of central um, hub for, for professional speakers. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, when suddenly a whole lot of us very quickly needed to start doing virtual, um, there were some speakers who did it better than others. You know, in, in, at two levels, for the ability to, to to be on camera speaking, which is very different than being on stage, to hold an audience's attention, to understand the interaction. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the technology side. Do you have the camera and the sound and the lighting and if, if, and the bandwidth? And if suddenly internet goes out, how quickly on another device can you log back in to salvage the presentation? And so mm-hmm. they came up with that certification, and uh, I, you know, went after it because at the certainly throughout the pandemic. Being able to um, sell and present virtual presentations was very important. So that's how I got that certification. You know, that makes a lot of sense when I think about the pivot we made at the university to online teaching and all those things were so important. And it was it was a difficult pivot quickly. So those are quite some skills to have, Scott. But um, you have so much on your website, including all these helpful video clips that I plan on since they're open. You said I could. I'm going to use a few in my classes But one line that really struck me was that you train, quote, leaders how to think at a higher level with a peak performance mindset that keeps emotions in check and yields the clearest, most productive perspective possible. Gosh, can you unpack all that for us? (laughs) Sure. Basically means I help people think better so they can make more money. Ah, gotcha. And what that looks like is not positivity. That's what people expect because the business card says motivational speaker that I'm going to get up and start you know, giving all the cliches, don't worry, be happy, look on the bright side, keep your chin up, have a positive attitude. The problem with a positive attitude in business is it causes people to make impulsive decisions, to be irresponsible, to evaluate their business based on faith rather than on their P&L. You know, I want to, I, I always interview franchisees before I speak at their conventions. And so I asked one, how's business going? He says, great. I said, based on what? And he says, well, you know how they say most businesses close in the first 18 months? It's two years and we're still here. This guy had no idea how he was doing. Um, And so I was concerned. So I think positivity can get us into trouble. It's not going to drive down your expenses. It's not going to increase your sales. I certainly don't preach negativity. I think top franchisees are all about clarity. They keep a clear head. Their emotions are in check so they can make clear decisions based on a data, information, and objectivity, you know, on specific KPIs. And so... Um, as I've met all these great franchisees over the years, and as I wrote my book, that's what I discovered about these franchisees. They're not the most positive or most enthusiastic people, but they're very clear and they're very level-headed. They have emotions, but they're able to put them in check. And that enables them to work with great efficiency and really see things as they are. So that I think is the best mindset compared to someone who's just all faith and enthusiasm. You know, that makes sense because when I think of the most successful franchisees I know, you've just described them. So that that absolutely, I, I could confirm that. 
but you also have several main buckets of speaking. And these are my buckets, but to me, it looked like it was leadership, employee retention, customer experience, sales, and franchising. And then culture is all a part of that. But let's talk about a few, if you don't mind. The one clip I really enjoyed was called, and it, it caught my attention immediately. It was called Leadership is a Form of Technology. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, first of all, you mentioned all those different buckets. And by the way, you said your buckets are the same. So I'm glad to have you uh, as my bucket buddy. Um, <laughs> but it, I'm not someone who speaks on all things. You know, what all, the, what all those subjects have in common is they're rooted in the human experience, right. how we think, and then collectively how we communicate. So you notice there wasn't anything there about marketing. Right. Um, right. Or So um, I know what I know. And I'm interested in the human elements of business. And so that's what all those things have in common. Mm -hmm. So when I say leadership is a form of technology, if you ask any franchisee, you know, are you using the same point of sale system now that you're using 15, 20 years ago? Of course not, right? The same platform to run the business. Right. We think of technology, we usually think of things electronic, digital, or mechanical. And we all know that we need to continuously update those things in order to be competitive, let alone get ahead. Well, leadership itself is a form of technology, that the way we connect and influence people today is different than how this might have been done 10, 15, 20 years ago. And we can pretty much guarantee that 10 or 15 years from now, people are going to be influenced differently right. than they are today. And so I think the business owner, manager, anybody in leadership position needs to continuously reflect on how they are leading. How are they motivating people? How are they coaching people? How are they disciplining people? How are they evaluating them? And be willing to change their approach based off of how things were. You know, there was a time when if someone took a personal phone call during business hours, it would be completely inappropriate and they could get fired for that. Mm -hmm. Well, these days, you know, younger people, they need a sense of connection. They need to be able to check that Instagram or that sort of thing. And the fact is, a lot of times they can do it without any decrease in productivity. If anything, it makes them relax. In an environment where it's harder to find employees than it is to find customers, it's really not that big a deal. It's my, it might be a good perk to have a more casual environment. So I think an old way of, leader, of leading is thinking when you pay someone hourly, you own them. You own that time. If you think that way today, you're not going to be able to keep your employees. Right. We need to continue. You know, I, another example is I was speaking to a franchise system and one franchisor was telling me he has delivery people and the best labor hours he, sp he spends money on is the last half an hour a day when all the drivers are back in the warehouse and they're talking and they're hanging out because they're bonding. The culture is getting stronger. Well, another franchisee in the room said, I would never do that if they're on the clock. And look, why not? Well, because again, in his mind, he owns their time. He's not paying them to talk. He's paying them to make deliveries. It's like, no, you're paying them to like be a great team and having that kind of time it's not an expense, it's an investment because they're going to collaborate more effectively. 15, 20 years ago, that would have been a crazy argument. Today, it's very reasonable. So we need to continuously keep ourselves in check and ask the way we lead and the way we think of employees, um, is it aligned with the values and the expectations of today's workforce? You know, I really am fascinated with what you've said because there's so many parallels even in the classroom. So I typically, I, well, I tell my students whether or not they use their phone, their technology, that's up to them. And so I don't monitor that. And I find that to your point, they can be very productive by doing a quick check on quick check on social and it actually makes them happier. So I can see where that translates right into the workplace. 
Oh, that's fascinating. Gosh, I have so much here I want to talk about. I'm going to pull one more out of your website just because near and dear to me. So with franchising, you have a lot of content, but the one clip, and we're going to go to your, because I really want to get to your book, but one clip that resonated with me, having led operational standards for years, was sticking to the system protects the brand. Please explain that. Sure. You hear the phrase sticking to the system all the time. And I think to a lot of franchisees, it sounds like toe the line, fall in, right? Which franchisees are resistant to that notion. They don't, they got into franchising specifically because they don't want to be told what to do anymore. But it is a franchise, right? I mean, there's expectations. It's what you signed on for. Um, but you've outsourced the innovation. You've outsourced the creativity. It just makes sense to align yourself with what's been proven and what works. You know, better to, to embrace a few of your franchisors' mistakes for the benefit from all their well-researched uh, ideas than to kind of go out on your own. So that to me, that makes sense. But it's also about branding, that when there's consistency, the brand across the board gets better. And everyone says the same thing about McDonald's, that a quarter pounder tastes the same wherever you go, for better, for worse. Of course, you know, people's expectations can be met, but that's true for every element of that operation. That's good for the brand. Well, if I have a certain expectations of a brand, but those expectations are not met at some locations, well, now I'm questioning the brand overall. Mm-hmm. Well, as an individual franchisee, the brand is important because I want someone who is happy at, at another location to then use that happiness and come to mind. But also, I want to sell my business at some point. And if the brand is stronger, more people are going to know about it and more people will be interested in investing in that business. So... As a franchisee, I'm part of the brand. And so by sticking to the system, I'm contributing to that consistency. I'm contributing to the culture, which is good for the value of my individual business, as well as the success of the overall system. Perfect. Perfectly said. Wish I'd had that. I wish I'd had that little bit with me for years back at my old job. Perfectly said. Thank you. Well, let's switch gears for our last uh, 10 minutes. And, you know, we met when you sent me your book. And I devoured it because first, the title was just so perfect. So the full your full title is actually The Wealthy Franchisee, Game-Changing Steps to Becoming a Thriving Franchise Superstar. Why did you name it that? Because I knew if I named the book The Happy Franchisee, no one would buy it. <laughs> you got you to meet people where they're at and then guide them where you want them to go. Um as you know, early in the book, first chapter, the way I define a wealthy franchisee is obviously someone who's making money, but also someone who's in control of their time and has quality of life. Like you really have to check all three boxes in order to be a wealthy franchisee. Um, but again, if I just promised some of the other things, that wouldn't be of interest. But most people who buy a franchise business are interested in, in making more money. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that people who are making the most um, are also the ones who understand how to manage their time and protect it. Um, and have great quality of life. And so I want people to experience all three of those things. But you come up with a book title, you need a hook. You need to find a way to uh, to pull someone in. So And, and it needs to make a promise. Yeah. So that's how I came up with the title. Well, you found it because it definitely, definitely hooked me. And I love the way you describe wealth because I think that makes sense. And you know, one of the fascinating parts about franchising is that it does create not just wealth, but generational wealth. And so um, you've definitely hit the nail on the head there. But in your intro, you noted that you've met many franchisees in the same system, but some are successful and some aren't. And you've noted that the disparity was a result of how these franchisees think and that top franchisees cannot always help struggling franchisees. And when you were talking about your early experience with um, your chemotherapy treatment, 
and you noticed how people reacted differently. I thought of the parallel here. So can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. And I'm always careful to make that comparison. You know, in chemotherapy that, you know, there's some people who are having a much worse prognosis than others. And so you take that in consideration. There are circumstantial differences. But what I didn't notice in chemotherapy and talking to those people is that it wasn't necessarily the those with the worst prognosis who were suffering the most. You know, I met people, someone set me up on a, I was in my twenties when I had cancer. Someone set me up on a blind date with a girl who had the same kind of cancer I did. I know they thought that that would somehow, you know, be attractive. Uh, but so, you know, we go out and she was really just having the hardest time. And she was admitting that she was partying and using drugs and stuff like that. And we had the exact same prognosis, but the way she was reacting to it really sort of impacted, you know, her experience of it. Mm-hmm. And so in franchising, what I observed is there's a lot of myths about why people succeed. I always, in my interviews, I asked, you know, struggling franchisees why they believe others are succeeding. And, you know, Kathy, you know, the answers, what they always say, well, they have a better location. Nice. The franchisor loves them you know, uh, luck, they have more business experience. Better labor market. Yes, exactly. And that's just not the case, especially, you know, location, the biggest one, but invariably what happens is those struggling franchisees, they give up, they get out, a great franchisee acquires their location and they turn it around. Same circumstances, but they, they turn it around. Yeah. Those things make a difference, hard work and location, but those are, those are just to kind of play the game. What all the great franchisees have in common is this mindset piece. Great operations, yes, they market, they work hard, but on top of that, they infuse the operation with the right human elements. That's the difference. And so there's no need to tell the franchisees I'd get up in front of about the importance of marketing. Their franchisor is already doing that, but no one is talking about and no one's asking about mindset and culture. I've got a brand right now that they just contracted me to speak and we're talking about the content and they just did a survey of franchisees. What would you like to learn more about at the franchise convention? Well, of course they're saying how to increase sales. Yeah. As a franchise, that's like saying to kids, hey, what do you want to have for dinner? They're going to say pizza and ice cream. They don't necessarily know how they might be getting in their own way and what they need. Not that we want to dismiss what franchisees are saying in their feedback, but sometimes what they need and what they think they need are different. And in most cases, when franchisees, when they're not doing a great job, it's because they might be getting their own way because the mindset isn't there to drive the operations. Because mm-hmm. you know, marketing isn't just about advertising. It's about patience and faith. And managing people isn't just about directing their work. It's about understanding how to inspire them and how to engage them. And customer service isn't just about facilitating transactions. It's about building connections and elevating emotions. This is the human stuff. And no one talks about that. They're just mostly talking about operations. You know, you're exactly right. And there are two sections in your book that I really enjoyed and rarely see in franchise writing, controlling your critic and constructive comparison. And both deal with mindset. And so I'd love to talk more about that. Um, but I want to ask this one last question about your book because people need to go get this book. It's it's really fantastic. It's divided into three sections. The Wealthy Franchisee, Mastering the Wealthy Franchisee Mindset, and Mastering the Wealthy Franchisee Skill Set. As I said, we could talk for days about all the insights in your book. And I love that you have well-grounded theories like Tuckman's model of group behavior. But um, let me ask you, what section do you believe is the most impactful? I think the opening part or make the argument for mindset, why the human elements are important. For me, I believe that's game changing. That is the um, the thesis behind all of my work or my hypothesis or whatever. That's the basis for everything that I teach is understanding these human elements. So there's that. But that last part of the book, uh, you know, it's really more about the the business side. That's more practical day to day, like running a business. I I, I 
some people describe it as a personal growth book or that is very motivational, but I wrote it as a business book. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe some, you know, maybe it's a personal growth book disguised as a business book, but I want people who just want to get wealthy to read it and have lots of nuggets. And so there are two chapters that are all about managing employees. And I devoted two chapters because that's such a pain point for franchisees and managers yeah. and such an opportunity. And so I think all the content that's there, that's stuff that really speaks to my heart. I'm hoping my next book will actually be about those things. Um, so stay tuned, but oh, I'll be getting that, <laughs> but I, uh, but yeah, but I really, I think there's a lot of important content there. You know, um, Scott, you've had such a, an incredible career and I thank you for sharing your personal journey on here, but what are you most proud of in life or in my career? Just overall. Um, I am, I'm proud of my family, what my wife and I have accomplished together, sort of setting goals and sort of designing a lifestyle and being able to make choices that have supported that lifestyle, a certain amount of freedom, uh, creativity, to be able to kind of do things in our terms. We've been able to do that now for a quarter of a century together. And that's something that's very meaningful to me. And I like to think that along the way that I've helped a few people with the work that I've done. And so it's been in a way that I feel has been positive. And I don't want to die anytime soon. I feel like I have a lot more to experience, a lot more to give. But if I were to die tonight, I look back and be like, okay, I made my dent in the universe. And it's been a life well lived. Well, you definitely are having an impact. And my last question I ask all my guests, is there anything you wish you would have known before you entered franchising? I think I would have liked to have understood this human element even more. Even though I came into it as a motivational speaker, um, I really don't think I was aware enough of my own human. I thought I, as a motivational speaker, I'd come into it with these superpowers because I wasn't even aware of my own kryptonite. I wasn't even aware of how I was getting in my own way. So I think I would have benefited from a bit more of my own self-awareness. Um, but I learned and became aware of it very quickly. Well, you've had a wonderful career and I can't wait to read and hear more from you. And I can't thank you enough, Scott, for being our guest today. Have a great I've been day. wanting to have this conversation with you for a long time. So thank you so much for finally having me on, Kathy. Yes, thank you. Franchise You is brought to you by the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. For more information on the center, visit business.louisville.edu slash yumcgfe. Thank you for listening to Franchise You.